Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, as my guest, I have Frank Harten, who is an intercultural business consultant. And Frank, please forgive me for destroying the pronunciation of your name. That's all right. Um, I'm used to it. Yeah. <laughs> excellent. Frank is intercultural business consultant, author of a couple of books, and helps people to understand how to communicate with clarity in their conversations. Frank, welcome. Thanks, uh, Marcus. Yeah, happy to be here. Excellent. So, Frank, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your background, please? I can. Intercultural business consultant, as you said, and that comes from a background years ago when I was working in a company called Philips, which is what many people in the Netherlands work in. So I have a background in, in a purely technical field. I'm a physicist, started working in a technical field and quickly moved to commercial endeavors in Philips and then later on general management. So that's where I got a lot of experience working with other cultures, negotiating contracts with clients in other countries, etc. And used all of that 12 years ago to go independent. I'm an independent consultant ever since. Written a couple of books, as you said, about cross-cultural work, about building cross-cultural teams, about understanding different cultures, etc. Okay, so let's start at the very highest level, which is around clarity versus ambiguity. I have a view that ambiguity is the mother of all FUBARs. For those of you who don't know what a FUBAR is, it's fucked up beyond all recognition. So essentially, ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. And what I'd like to understand from you is, uh, in your observations over the years, what are the consequences of ambiguity? There are all sorts of things, but I like it that you say it starts at the top, but the consequences don't come at the top. The consequences go bottom-up in companies. That, that's where people feel them. So what I've seen over the years is that without bad intentions, I mean, the top is doing with very good intentions a lot of work there. But the reality often is that what is so clear to them, the messages they send around in a company are so unclear to people doing the real work and wondering, what the hell is this new initiative? We're starting change again. We haven't finished the previous one even. And that kind of frustration builds up. It's often not understood at the top because the top is miles ahead and are planning indeed for the, for the next change. There's a big mismatch between what the top sees as a top priority and what is felt in the organization to be the real thing we need to work on. This then raises a really interesting and important question, which is how should senior leadership listen to people throughout their organization, particularly those at the sharp or shitty end of the stick? I don't think it's how they should listen because everybody knows. It's the very fact that they should listen. And there's this fascinating research, you must have heard about it, Marcus, where, where they've asked top managers of companies, how good are your listening skills? And about 95% yeah. How good are your listening? Yeah, there, there, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> okay, you passed the mark. Um, but, but, but yeah, when you ask that very question, how good are you at listening? 95% of people believe that they're better than average listeners. The math doesn't add up. And we all do. I think I'm guilty of it myself very well also. I think I'm a good listener. I've learned that over the years. And I think on, compared to the average, yeah, I'm better. But then the reality is that so often you realize afterwards that you didn't listen, really. I think that's what's happening at the top as well. It's, it's not really learning how to listen. People know that. But, but listening is not a skill. It's a mindset. And if you're not really investing time to spend with others, if you're, if you're not setting aside a couple of hours a day probably to really feel what's going on in your organization you're steering something through the waters, which you don't know what it is. I'm going to challenge you on that because I- Yeah, I saw the doubt in your face, yeah. I genuinely believe people don't know how to listen. Many people listen for the silence so that they can fill it with the sound of their own voice. All human beings want to be heard, to feel felt, and to be understood. And if you're just thinking about, oh, you're listening for the gap, so that you can make your point. That isn't listening. That's just two people 
stating their biases and position without really listening. Listening is a whole body experience. Now, all of us know how to do it in certain moments. But in management, I think what tends to happen very often is because people are busy, they give people the minimum amount of time when they actually let them in. And then they're thinking, how quickly can I get them out of my office? They're worried that they're going to have stuff delegated up to them. So there's a natural resistance there. There isn't anywhere near enough time spent on real coaching where you are there to either listen, to ask questions, or to give direction. But again, they don't get that agenda from the person who they're meant to be listening to. There is a tendency in many large organizations to rely on these crappy employee surveys, which get sent out and then nothing happens. Or if oh, it don't does, get me started there. Yeah. So let, let's pick on that particular uh, bugbear. Why is it that so many organizations fail their employees, their customers, their suppliers by putting out these surveys and then failing to respond quickly enough? Why do they keep doing that? I think it's, it's an unconscious willingness to not be uncomfortable. So what you do in companies is you, you know that when you ask people honestly, are we doing well, you will get the truth. People will tell you what you're doing well, but they will also tell you the things you don't want to hear. So what do we do? We, we think it's safer, we, we, but we also think it's more fair. It's more whatever it is, if you analytically analyze the results of what people say. So we, yeah, we like to put out a survey to 10,000 employees, send it to them and ask them questions like, would you recommend your best friend to work here? And questions like that. And the answers come back and they tell you that people are not satisfied. They don't tell you what exactly they're not satisfied about because people haven't answered open-ended questions. They just answer the questions that are on paper. And then we start analyzing the results. We start analyzing the averages per company, per division, per team, per nation, per whatever cross-section you can make. Start analyzing the numbers. That, that in itself already takes weeks and weeks and weeks before you even get to talk about what does this mean to us. And I'm very much in favor of companies putting that out of the door and switch to real conversations. And I think you better talk to one person with a qualitative interview where you really ask the person what's going on and you ask follow-up questions and, and you really have the aim to understand than that you're talking to 10,000 employees and you're just gathering data. Because you know you, you can't work with the data. I had a fascinating conversation yesterday with Martin Lindstrom, who uh, is author of Biology, Small Data, and uh, half a dozen other books around the area. And he's a, a huge name in the branding space. And he spends about 280 to 300 days a year pre-lockdown inside other people's homes speaking to customers and getting the, the little data, the small data, the real nuance in terms of understanding how they think. I work with a company called Gap in the Matrix that specializes in solving the answer to this question. Why do humans not understand other humans? Mm. And the conclusion I'm reaching is that we don't spend enough time, we don't pay enough attention to the little inferences and the little implications of what people actually think and do. And what we're looking for is safe responses to questions that we bias in order to elicit the uh, response we're hoping for. And that doesn't tell us the truth. Now, uh, I don't know if you've come across a lady called Amy Brown. Amy Brown runs a customer experience company called Authentics. Their website is be authentic with an X on the end and uh, .com. And they listen to something like 10 billion calls a year in the US medical market. And they listen and they filter using unbiased AI analysis. So they've got a bunch of social scientists that look at the data and come at it from different angles. So they've got people from every ethnic group, and different socioeconomic groups and different genders and sexual orientation so they can eliminate as much of the bias as they can. And then they play these audio montages to the boards of these companies. 
both good and bad feedback. And often you find the chief marketing officer with their head in their hands saying, I had no idea. Or the CEO and the CFO, their eyes popping out because they're recognizing that for the first time, they're hearing what their customers are saying in quick succession. And we have to get more savvy about because I think so many organizations have been seduced by big data. And according to Forrester at a dinner I went to last Christmas, only 7% of companies that use big data do it well. So we're not listening. We're not really listening. What we're doing is we're hearing stuff that we want to hear and we're biasing the, the input. And what we need is the unfiltered unfettered, unbiased opinions of our customers on the basis of how we are affecting them, our employees, and how our decisions are affecting their ability to do their work. But that just isn't happening. So what's your advice to leadership? Let me get back to you. It's so true that we don't hear the real story. So we hear stories and they're biased to what we want to hear. And and it takes an enormous amount of courage to really start digging for the unfiltered truth, it's so much easier to ask what questions about what you want to hear, you know. The discomfort of nuance is very <laughs> unpleasant. So, um, I, I usually call it that, yeah. We're looking for extremes, right? In, in this podcast interview as well, if I say things that are really out of line, you remember them. If I use this one sentence that says, all CEOs are fucked up. You will remember that and you start, we all trigger on that without going into the nuance of what makes him say that and in what situations are they and in what situations are they not. And, and starting to discover that, starting to uncover that is, it takes an enormous amount of curiosity and courage to, to go there. And it's, it's simply something we try to avoid at all costs. Um, we want to protect ourselves. So what's the advice? I think... It's exactly on that point. Start with opening up yourself and embrace discomfort. I mean, it's great to not know. As leaders, we we usually think we should know. We should have the answers. We should have a strategy. We should be able to tell people where we go tomorrow. And that's all true. But at the same time, how revealing is it if a leader says, that's a great question you're asking me. And to be honest, I really don't know the answer at this point. I'd need to think about that. Let's talk about some more tomorrow. And if you do that, you send out a signal that you've heard somebody. You send out a signal you're human. I've just said, I don't know. And it's uncomfortable because I've just been discovered as a leader who doesn't have all the answers. That's great. But am I willing to live with that discomfort? And if I'm willing to, then a whole world of nuance opens up. We're no longer forced to talk in these extremes of left and right or Democrat or Republican. There's this beauty in the middle. And I'm not saying you should always be in the middle, but there's a lot to learn there. And I think that's what's what's happening in companies, Marcus. When we do these surveys, we ask for the extremes as well. We'd like to make a cross-section and tell in, in Division A, people believe that their managers are not listening well. Well, that's probably not true. I mean, let's talk about in what situations do we see them listening and where not? And with what customer are they typically not listening? And why is that? And when you go deeper, when you ask these open-ended questions, there's so much more to learn than when you stay on the closed-ended questions about things you want to hear. Well, one thing that I see in my line of work is people in marketing, in product development and in management and leadership, not spending anywhere near enough time speaking to customers and leaders not managing by walking around anymore. I know under lockdown, that's uh, tricky, but we need to spend more time looking at the human element and finding out whether people are okay and remembering that they are human beings. They're not uh, task machines. They have a task to complete but they're living, breathing, mostly sentient human beings. Uh, To pick up on your point, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that means you need to talk to people at both ends of the extreme. You need to talk uh, talk to people who love what you do, uh, but you also need to talk uh, talk to people who hate what you do and have recently fired your company uh, and find out why. And look at um, also speaking to people whose patterns of behavior have changed. Uh, because uh, chances are 
that's where the best lessons will come from. Um, yeah. If you see a high-performing employees not performing, don't pretend that it's going to go away. Deal with it and find out what's going on in their lives. But I think so many people are afraid of difficult conversations. And this, I think, then leads to uninclusive leadership because what they don't do is they don't listen to their people. So in terms of recruiting people in leadership roles who are inclusive in their behavior and in their leadership style, what are the qualities that we should be looking for? I think there's something quite counterintuitive there, which is that when, when you talk about recruiting leaders, we usually have this idea of they need to be visionary. They need to have a strong voice, a strong opinion. They should be able to articulate that. They should be able to make others follow them, et cetera, et cetera. And I think when you talk about inclusive leadership, you add a whole new dimension. And it, it, it's this part that we just talked about. Are they, for example, willing to be very uncomfortable? Are they willing to put out there that they don't know? I think inclusiveness starts with recognizing that you don't have the wisdom yourself. And it's opening up other people to tell them, to tell you what they want to tell you. So opening up that conversation is not easy to do. It's really one step further even than what we just talked about. It's a very uncertain environment as a leader of a department of 100 people to say, I don't know. And that's a big step. I mean, it, it starts with recognizing that and saying, somebody else might know better than me. Let's go out and find out. I think recruiting for that mindset of curiosity, that, that really unbiased mindset that says, let's find out. I don't know. So it's a big challenge now to start finding out. Let's talk to people. Let, let, let's learn. That's something we, we don't often do. And I think for inclusiveness, I love it that you make the link there because I think inclusiveness is that topic that requires that mindset. You can't be inclusive if you're not really curious about what's going on for somebody else. And I think there's this misplaced idea that that doesn't belong in companies. It's a mindset. That's really interesting because it, it does strike me that if you don't do that, you're going to suffer from upward delegation. You're going to become a bottleneck yeah. and you're going to be making decisions that jar and will often impact negatively or certainly be received negatively by the people upon whom you depend to be successful. So you're becoming a bottleneck, you say. That's interesting, because in, in what way do you become a bottleneck? If things have to be delegated up to you, and you're run ragged because you're so busy, busy, busy making decisions, doing instead of planning and designing systems and processes and developing your people, then first of all, you're not doing what you should be doing. And secondly, until you make those decisions, then nothing happens. And so things come to a grinding halt. And yes. I see a lot of leaders become bottlenecks because of that. The thing is that what I love about that picture, I try to visualize it, is that these people are a bottleneck to their employees. They're certainly a bottleneck to the organization as such. They probably can't even see that they're a bottleneck themselves. I think they're really operating from good intentions and thinking they're doing the right mm -hmm. thing. And that's probably the big challenge that we have in organizational development or, or in the area of leadership, if you want, is, is how to make that visible to people, how to, how to break that, that idea that we're doing the right thing. Um, I, I still believe that, that that premise that we all operate from good intentions. And I've, I've seen some very, very, very bad managers <laughs> that I hated when I was working with them. Still afterwards, I needed to admit that they thought they were doing the right things. And in their world, in their vision at that moment, it was absolutely the right thing they were doing. So I tend to agree with you. I think people do have the belief that they're doing the right thing, and it may be their intent. But it strikes me that the solution, or a solution, needs to start in the recruitment process. Mm. And we need to get much better at recruiting people with high empathy, strong EQ, and a high level of self-awareness, and understanding the effect they have on other people around them. And alluding to your earlier point, 
that often uh, we're looking for strong leaders. Um, my, my wife uh, was watching The Crown yesterday over supper, and mm-hmm. um, it was this scene where Margaret Thatcher was uh, having a, there was a coup, a leadership coup, and they were displacing her. And she went to go and see the Queen. And she was saying, well, you know, a, a leader should be strong to lead. And the Queen was making the point that, you know, have you spoken to your cabinet? Have you got their opinion? And I think what you often find uh, with managers who operate from, in the drama triangle, the persecutor, it's my way or the highway. It's very directive. And in fact, some research was done by a company that does uh, psychometrics. They run a report called The Leader's Secret Code. And what was really interesting was where it comes to control, there is a balance between directive and participative. So it's roughly 40% directive and 60% participative for the top 5% of leaders. And often you'll see people being very directive or they'll be very participative. And the net result of that is that they uh, don't uh, establish clear boundaries. And so again, that lack of clarity tends to mean that the people who report to them are not clear about what is expected. Whereas if it's too directive, people are afraid to step out of line. They're afraid to challenge. And I've been fortunate enough through the podcast to interview some of the world's best sales leaders. And what was really interesting with all of them is the amount of time they spent coaching, but also being coached, and the frequency with which they spoke to their direct reports, and how often they ended up in stand-up fights with one another. Um, because you know, And they weren't afraid to fight, because they understand the value of constructive conflict. And you know, these are companies that have grown 200% compound year on year for five, six, seven years in a row, or even higher. And this then brings me to the next question. If you are going to create a culture that encourages constructive conflict, what are the ground rules that you need to have in place in order to ensure that it doesn't go from constructive to destructive conflict? That's a hard line to walk because it... it you, you know, the conventional answer to that question is we need to create safety, safety for people to speak up and to say what they really think. But that that's easier said than done. I mean, it sounds so easy. You need to provide safety, safe environment. I don't know how to create that, honestly. And I don't think many people do. It's, it's not a switch that you pull. And from that moment on, the environment is creative. I think it takes a lot of genuine giving the example to people and really starting with that behavior yourself and hoping that one person you meet is going to open up as a result of, of doing that and, and is going to have a real conversation with you. And as, as I believe it's Laura Janicek who said that, it's, it's one conversation at a time that leads to change. And in each of these conversations, you can make a little change I don't believe in big corporate initiatives where the Marcom department is rolling out a new campaign and and this time the campaign is about listening or it's about better recruitment or whatever. It really starts with with finding one good spot in the company of somebody who's willing to experiment and who's really wanting to try to live that new thing, whatever it is, and it's going to spread it around. I think a couple of really good examples and role models on this. Uh, one is a guy called Michael Puck, who is a specialist in human capital management and employee engagement. And uh, when he was working with a, an explosives company, interestingly enough, in the US, they had real problems. And he started managing by walking around. And I mean, there would literally be two people in a one acre site because you didn't want too many people around all these explosives. And he started speaking to people and finding out what they really wanted. And within a very short space of time, by first of all, listening, and then by demonstrating that he had heard and feeding back what he had heard quickly, he was then able to start restructuring how the employee benefits worked, how people were recruited, how people actually had a forum to be uh, listened to. And they became a destination employer very quickly. 
Ian Dodds is another shining example of this. Uh, Ian was with ICI, and in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, he really championed the whole process of managing inclusively. And he was able to turn around the worst performing factories in the world and make them the top performing factories within three to five years. And he did this throughout his career. And I see highly engaged employees deliver something that mildly engaged or actively disengaged employees don't, which is discretionary effort. And that only comes through paying attention to listening, to being fully present and to being ready to get uncomfortable uh, and being okay with that. Very few leaders are vulnerable enough to do that. And vulnerability means to put yourself in a harmful position, knowing that you may lose some or all of what you've got. And that means taking risk. But I think a lot, far too many people in leadership positions are afraid of risk. So again, your thoughts on this? It rings a bell to me. It, when I think back about some of the more difficult discussions around customer issues that we were having when I was leading a department in Philips, is exactly that topic. It's, it's these moments where, as a, as a group of a few managers, we got together because there's this huge problem with one of the clients and they're probably going to be on line stop and they can't produce anymore and we need to solve this problem. And, and you start with a group of managers to think about what are we going to do about this? And you're all busy with it, full-time, 24-7. And the real breakthrough is usually in that meeting where there's some lower-level engineers who've been with that customer a couple of times, who are never asked what they think. They're just sent to the customers to solve a problem and come back. But these people, when you really succeed to open them up and you ask them, you went to Barcelona last week, you went to the production line of our customers, what did you see? What was the belt stop about? Wasn't it didn't have enough product? I mean, just start asking questions and really listen to the answers that the engineers give you. And the engineers will usually tell you exactly what the problem is. They will know. And if you ask these engineers at a lower level in the company, if this were your department, if this were your company, what would you do? I'm usually surprised of the very sharp answers they give, of the bright ideas they have. I've, I've, I've one time asked that question to, a, to an engineer who was really at the, at the level of, well, <laughs> engineering work, didn't have to do anything with management or whatever. And asking the question, what would you do if you were to take over this department tomorrow? The guy had a clear plan. There was a couple of people he said that would immediately need to go. He would start hiring people with a completely different background to what we were doing now. And he he had that plan in his head. And I was fascinated by it because that plan needs to be on the table and discussed. It doesn't need to stay in the head of the engineer. That's stupid. This is really interesting. I interviewed a guy called Patrick Lindqvist, and he is the head of innovation for the city of Helsingborg in Sweden. And their objective is by 2023 uh, to be a leading center of innovation in Europe. And for his transport team, he hired no one with a a background in transport. They were all users of public transport. And what was really interesting about that was how quickly they were able to improve the experience of users. And because at the end of the day, I think what we often forget is that uh, as a, a creator of a product or a service, we need to start with the user, not with creating the product and going out and trying to find a customer. And where I see real success happening is where people start with the customer at the front and center and heart of everything they do. And what's fascinating about that is he also has something else which I've never seen before. He's recruited, and I can't pronounce it in Swedish, but what he called gap managers. And their job was to manage the gap between the silos and to translate and bridge that gap. And the net result of that is that they actually heard what the customers wanted. They heard what the people on the front lines wanted. And they were dramatically able to improve uh, oh, yeah. the transport system. I know you've got some thoughts, uh, Richard Feynman. Yeah. 
Uh, so please go ahead. <laughs> I love this topic. And it, it's this willingness indeed to bring in people who do the unconventional thing to the people who start asking the questions that, the, that you don't like to be asked. And Richard Feynman really is one of my role models when you, when you talk about that. Do you know him? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a Genius. famous guy, of course. Yeah. A physicist, my old profession. But And, and also Sheldon Cooper's hero from uh, uh, the uh, <laughs> absolutely. comedy series, yeah. which has my mind. His books are great. And one of the, I mean, it's unfortunate that he died already in 86 of the last century, but a great guy who, one of my favorite stories is about the space shuttle that blew up in the sky. He was asked to be on the presidential committee to investigate the disaster. And he describes beautifully in his book how a committee of eight people, a presidential committee, was going to investigate this. And they had the, all these hearings in NASA with all the NASA managers. And when they started investigating, the guy got really frustrated because for 10 days already, they were in meetings with managers not knowing and it was Richard Feynman who went out on his own, went to the factories of NASA, went to the production centers where they make the O-rings in, in the Tyocol company in, in, I think it was Nevada or Utah. I started just finding out by talking to the engineers and said, you know, if what could have gone wrong? And it was very quickly that they discovered what the real issue was. Of course, management didn't want to hear it and it was unconventional to research it in this way, and there was not enough proof, management said. But it was a very simple problem, an O-ring leaking at low temperatures. And it's simply not picked up in the, in the chain, well, in the hierarchy, if you want, in the, in the chain of events in a company. But the engineers at a low level knew it. They, they knew that they were running an enormous risk by, by launching a space shuttle at that time at, at these temperatures. Again, I think that we can point to many examples of accidents and disasters that were, were created not because people didn't have the answers, but because there was a hierarchy, a chain of command, a protocol, which senior management would not be flexible about. So people were either punished or silenced or didn't feel that they could have a voice. And that's really dangerous because what that does is it makes the organization deaf. And in doing that, they miss out on great opportunities. And with the uh, Be Authentics folk, they learn what the customers love about their products so they can double down on that. They also learn the negative impact of the way that they, their website even. I mean, what was really interesting in the, my conversation with Amy is that they managed to save 40% of their very expensive salespeople's time because they listened to what the customers said through the conversational analytics and they identified the problems on the website because a lot of the calls were uh, complaint calls um, to salespeople saying, I can't work out how the hell to do this on your website. And just by doing that, they freed up 40% of their salespeople's time, which mm. then added to their top and bottom line, improved the customer experience and retention which is what the organization would clearly have wanted. There is a book that I must recommend. Uh, I've recommended it several times on the podcast, but if you have not yet got it, it is called The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. And it's the book that I would have written if he hadn't. And it is <laughs> packed. Every chapter is packed with questions that hold up the ugly mirror to you and slap you around the head. Oh, wow. Um, and it is a deeply uncomfortable book to read. And it's an even more uncomfortable book to implement. And I uh, had a conversation with an old client of mine some time back who has implemented that. And he managed to save uh, his business, which was dying on its legs when he took it over earlier this year. And he implemented the content from The Road Less Stupid. Right. He's implemented the other thing, which I think is really smart, which is 45 minutes, at least 45 minutes a week with you a notepad and a pen and one question and nothing to distract you because I don't think people spend anywhere near enough time in reflection. And this is where I think many leaders fall down because they're so busy doing that they don't spend enough time thinking. Yeah. So how do you suggest people free up that time to make sure that they have the time to do their real job 
in leadership, which is the design phase? Well, probably the answer is what you just said. It, it's a great example. I love it. Uh, taking a notepad, just sitting down for half an hour and and being busy only with one single question that you want to answer. I think that, that the reflection time is so well invested and brings you so much. I mean, it's not for nothing that meditation is so much promoted in the in the business and corporate world and and we it leads to fantastic insights to take the time yourself to to think about the probably the uncomfortable questions as you call them so rather than go back to your emails where there's all the things you need to push out for the next half an hour answering 200 emails that that are still waiting for you and it needs to be done but that one single email with that deeper question, with, with, with the question you don't know the answer to, that's probably the best use of your time at that very moment. I mean, the things you don't know are, well, it's probably the red line in our, in our talk today, Marcus. I mean, we've talked about recruitment where, where that question also needs to be asked. Let's not ask you about your CV, but let's ask you about the things that you're really not sure of. You can learn so much from that. I mean, a philosopher once told me a beautiful question that he's asking people. It's the question, is there one thing you are one day very sure of that you're not sure of now anymore? And if you ask that question to people, it leads to great conversations because people will take you along in their, in their line of thought. It's a fantastic, probably leadership lesson to, to think about what is it that I, that I one day knew very sure and that I really started doubting later on. What was needed to make me doubt something I truly believed in? What was that for you? I need to think. You got <laughs> me there. There have been very various occasions, yeah. I remember one conflict with a colleague where, where one day I was very sure of the fact that he was doing stupid things, and I was right and he was wrong. <laughs> I was deeply down <laughs> into that. Um, of course, I had to admit later on that uh, I'd seen that wrong. Probably accused him of things that were not so nice. And, and, but I was so very sure of the fact that I was right here and he was wrong. I think anybody can, can recognize that, you know. There, there's things in life we're sure of. And it's nice to hang on to them because that gives us a lot of security and safety. But again, going back to Richard Feynman, he is the scientist who always said, don't go for the things you know. They're not interesting. The things you don't understand yet, that's great. That's fascinating. And, and you'd better spend half your life pondering with one question that you don't know the answer to that, than 10 questions to which there's an obvious answer. That's not interesting. It becomes interesting when you don't know. Absolutely. I mean, I, I had two. One was the belief that asking for help was a sign of weakness and that I should do it myself. And that took me 36, 40 years to work out. And I do, I rue the fact that I didn't learn that sooner. And the second one was that I used to think the most important question was why. But actually, <laughs> the most important question is who. Who knows the answer? I have saved myself infinite amount of time and wasted effort by simply asking the question, who can answer this for me? And one of the reasons why I set this podcast up was that there were questions I wanted to have answered. And I've collectively managed to accrue 4,000 years worth of experience onto my podcast. Yeah. And in doing so, I have learned so much. I've learned more in the last two years than I did in the previous 51. Right. By asking and questions. By yeah. asking questions, but finding out who are the experts in that field mm. and engaging in a constructive, collaborative debate. But we don't always agree. That's the beauty of it. And I think in our preamble, you uh, mentioned that what we should do is not think of things like diversity and inclusion as the same thing, but really look for the difference between the two and understand how to really manage inclusively. Uh, but I think we should also think inclusively. And Matthew Syed's book, uh, Rebel Ideas, talks about this. The whole premise of that is that unless you have diverse teams, you will only have a very blinkered, limited perspective. 
so the case he cites that I always yeah. uh, refer to is you have a US audience and a Japanese audience, and you ask them to describe the same fish tank. Mm. And the Americans will describe the fish, and the Japanese will describe the tank, the gravel, the bubbles, the seaweed, and the aesthetics of the tank. But without mm. the two, you don't have a full picture. So let's dig into the difference between diversity and inclusion. It's probably in that example that you were just giving about the Americans and the Japanese. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of work in that area and the cross-cultural consulting. And we usually think that the answer is in learning more about the other culture. So if I take that example, the group of Americans would probably come to me and say, we, we need this training on Japan, you know, come, come in and tell us for three hours about Japan, because if we learn that, we can solve these problems. I can come for three hours and talk about Japan and you can all understand all the ins and outs about the culture of Japan and haven't solved a single problem of what you're dealing with today because the problem is not culture. The problem is not the fact that these people are Japanese. The problem is something else. And the fact that they're Japanese and you're American only blurs the picture. If you step over that, you can start to solve the real issue. And that's probably with diversity and inclusion. Uh, the diversity isn't the problem, although we, we tend to believe that, that the world needs to be fair. So we need an equal amount of women on boards as men, and we need an equal amount of colored people versus whatever cross-section you can make. But getting the numbers right is, is only such a small part of the equation. It takes a lot of courage to step over that and say, we're not going to be bothered for the moment with the right amount of people in each bucket. We're, we're not going to be bothered for the moment about diversity. That's something we can't solve to do tomorrow. But what we can start to do is act more inclusively. Uh, what we can start to do is ask the uncomfortable questions. What we can start to do is hire somebody who tremendously disagrees with us during the hiring interview. How great would that be? And I, I think that goes in the direction of inclusiveness. Um, it, it's that willingness to be uncomfortable with people around you who don't say what you want to hear and who become honest. And I love that idea of, of inclusiveness. You know, how, how different would job interviews be if you wouldn't go along the CV and ask people these smart questions about, you know, how many grains of salt are there in the Atlantic Ocean and then hope if they give an a good approximation of that number, that then they're smart and they've proven to have an engineering mind and all that stuff. And you go through the stories in the CV and ask them, why did you change from department A to B? Tell us more about that. What made you change? I mean, let's talk about different things. In a recruitment interview, what I would like to talk about is the biggest problem we face as a company at the moment. And talk to the new hire about this is an issue we're, we're, we're really willing to solve. What are your first thoughts about that? And let's talk about that. And you're going to be surprised by the number of people who give you great ideas because they think differently. They come from a different background. They're, they're not in the company yet. They come from outside. Let these people put their thoughts on the table. And at the moment, you as a, as a hiring manager get uncomfortable about what they say. Or at the moment, you start noticing that will never work here. That's the moment you really need to start listening. That's where you learn. This is really interesting. I interviewed a fascinating chap called Travis Miller, and he made a really very important point, which is that you should hire for what you cannot train. And ah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's just a genius moment because you can train skills experience, in all honesty, I've never really found to be a deal breaker. And the, the challenge is, what are the qualities that we are looking for to build more strength in our team? So again, hire for people whose strengths make our weaknesses irrelevant. I love the idea that you find uh, you hire people who disagree with us, because that can only strengthen our perspective, but also our awareness. And I think awareness is something that is often sadly lacking, certainly in uh, many teams and in leadership, because uh, you kind of get into a rut, into a habit. And one of my favorite definitions of a rut is a coffin with both ends kicked out. Uh, <laughs> and again, 
when I think about hiring diverse people, you have to manage inclusively or you will not be able to retain them. And that's one of the big challenges where companies make this push uh, to uh, have more women, uh, more non-white people uh, in their organization. And what what we have to remember, in fairness, is 52% of the global population is women and about 80% is non-white. So we're missing out on a vast amount of talent because of bias. But if we don't make it possible for them to stay, then all of our efforts are for nothing. Oh, yeah. So, again, what are you teaching your clients in order to ensure that they do create the conditions where people who are different to us um, feel comfortable staying and feel like they are being heard? I come back again to honest conversations about the things that are going on in the company. I think that's where inclusiveness starts with, with really being being able to put on the table what you think is 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 bothering you, the, the real questions you're having at the moment, etc. I don't like to talk in terms of minorities, but but I can't find a better word at the moment. If you're if you're coming into a company as a minority, inclusiveness starts with hiring people who are not like you. They're going to feel uncomfortable by definition at the moment they come in. They can be very self-assured. They, they can have a very high level of self-confidence, yet they will feel that they're in the minority. What's the only way for these people to start contributing? It's not only to be heard. It's to be challenged to speak up. It's to be asked the right questions. It's to be treated inclusively in meetings, not by being there. That's not the issue. It's about giving them the space to to give their honest opinion. It's by giving them the space to fail. It's by giving... You need to do all these kinds of things as a company to show people that you really value their input. And that's such an enormous step to make. It's it's a shift in mindset that you that you need to make yourself. It, and it's again that topic of not knowing. I don't know the right answer. This new hire may know. So although I tend to disapprove of the idea that any new hire in this company can tell me what to do. I've been here 30 years. He hasn't been here for a single month. Well, if you have the courage to start talking to that person who's been there only a single month and ask that person the critical questions and be really prepared for what's coming and listen to them and and open up, then you're going to have really honest conversations in a company that will I think really make the environment more inclusive, as you said. One of the things that we have done in the companies that I'm now heading up as a marketing for is new hires are given clear instruction that in the first four weeks and over the first three months, their job is to give us feedback on how we can improve the onboarding process, the interview process, and how we can make them feel more valued. And uh, we offer three, uh, the three Ps, which is potency, protection, and permission. And that does create a safer environment. They, you know, they're not going to be punished for it. They can save their piece. And they, uh, we want to hear their honest, unfiltered opinion of their experience. And it is uncomfortable because you know, with 35 years in sales and sales management and whatever else, I could let my ego get in the way. But what I really want is to create an environment that makes us a destination employer. And in order to do that, we have to have massively engaged employees who are focused on creating lifetime customers. And if we get in the way of that because of our ego, then we're failing in our values And our values are the filters through which we make every decision. And that's really interesting because when you start to use your values as the filter to your decision-making process, it frees up an enormous amount of time because if it doesn't fit with the values, it's an automatic no. If it does, then we give it due consideration. Yeah. But we have to keep our ego out of the way. And that really takes a lot of discipline and a lot of humility as well, because I think one of the most valuable lessons I've learned over the last 35 years is to recognize that not only do I not know the answers, but if I seek help from other people, then chances are together we will come up with a much better outcome. Hmm. 
when people are buying, yeah. they're not buying uh, the product. They're buying the outcome. And they only rent your product. Yeah. They don't buy it outright. They rent it for as long as it, it is continuing to deliver the outcomes it wants. And we have to be very aware. And I think one of the, the areas that we tend to lack as human beings is awareness because of our filters, our biases, our history, our prejudices. And that is a really, really hard thing to let go of. Oh, yeah. And it, it makes me realize while you're saying that, that it's an equation with two sides. I mean, it's, it's too easy to only point at the employers to say, you need to create the conditions for people to start speaking up. I mean, inclusiveness is, is for a great deal about creating that safe environment and, and pointing to, to the company to say, you need to do this right. But equally, I'm realizing that at the side of the new hire that comes in, there's a huge responsibility as well. You can't shift the inclusiveness only to the company and say, you need to get this right. It starts with me also. And the, the example I have is that recently I've done a three-month interim project in an organization that I didn't know. I was new there, started helping them on a new learning management system. And the first time I really got into conflict in that company was when I did something that really clashed with their culture. I asked somebody at a very high level in the company to have an honest conversation about what was going on. I asked the person if he would have one hour of time available for that. And I was battered down by the highest levels in that company who said, you can't just approach that guy and start talking to him. You've skipped three levels. You've There was all yeah. kinds of reasons why it couldn't be done. And it made me realize how easy it would have been for me at that moment to back off and accept that I was the minority. I was just here for a couple of weeks. Accept that that's their culture and move on now and, and, and start to go around that. You know, I've learned my lesson from this moment on. I shouldn't ask people of that level. It took an, quite a bit of courage to say, it. you know, they've hired me for some reason. Let's make it happen. And, and, and let's do here what I think needs to be done, which is, create that culture where I can just call up somebody and ask a question. Damn it, why, why, why shouldn't I be able to call that person? Because there's all these internal company rules that tell me not to. And it, the, the point here is that it, it's a, a big responsibility on my end as well to open up that conversation about what needs to happen and, and not only shift the responsibility to the company and say, you, you need to get your culture right. No, it's also me who... We, we need to own our 50% of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look, uh, Frank, we've come to the top of the hour. Tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I think I'm struggling with something that everybody's struggling with at this moment. is is repositioning my business. I'm in the business of helping groups work more effectively with other cultures, which means a lot of workshops, a lot of lectures, et cetera, et cetera. And... We're now in an environment, in, in, in an era probably, where these face-to-face -face meetings are less and less happening. And repositioning my business is not easy. I, I think I'm less good at change than I tend to believe, <laughs> than I hope I would be. So, yeah, that's something I put my head on. Have you taken the time, time to identify the problems that your customers or your uh, ideal customers are trying to address? Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. focused on creating relevant messaging. Because I think where a lot of people have come unstuck is what was relevant is no longer relevant or it's not a priority anymore. And often we produce elegant solutions to problems that don't exist or that are not a priority. So I, I like that spin that you're giving to it. Yeah, that's, that, because that's indeed essentially what we talked about for the last hour, right? It's to, uh, to change your mind there also and say, okay, what I believed in a couple of weeks ago is no longer reality. Let's find out again what, what the current reality is. So to slap you around the head with your own book title, <laughs> Managing by Looking in the Mirror, how have you looked in the mirror over the last eight months in order to pivot and become more relevant? Exactly in that idea. Um, I mean, by, by, there's probably a few angles to it, but it's, it's first of all recognizing that I was uncomfortable about these changes. And there was something I love to do, which is work with groups 
and give them new ideas about culture, make them look at it in a different way. And it was no longer there. That's uncomfortable. I, I don't like that. And I certainly still don't like the idea of that world being gone. Um, at the same time, it, it gives great opportunities. Yeah, I started doing something recently that I was planning already for years to do and never did. I started doing now. I'm teaching physics at a high school to uh, teenagers of, of 14 and 15 years old. I do that two days a week now because I thought, now I have the time. Let's do it. It was something I wanted to do for a long time. It's deeply uncomfortable, I have to tell you. I, I worked for years with, with adults in, in, <laughs> in workshops. Now I'm working with a class of 30 kids who don't want to learn a thing today. And it's a, it's a massive challenge. But in terms of leadership development, it's so good to do something that I'm very uncomfortable with and start finding out from, from scratch, really, how this thing called education works. And I, I yeah, it's a great step. It's a great step. And I, I certainly won't guarantee that I continue doing it, but it's, it's, it's a fantastic way to learn something new. It's jump into it and find out from scratch. One of my mentors taught me a very valuable lesson which is let go or be dragged. And I think sometimes we have to let go of what we're attached to. And this comes back to a fundamental tenet of Buddhism, which is that attachment is the root to all misery. And, mm. you know, I, I look at organizations um, that have stagnated and they flatlined, and it's often because they will not compete with themselves. They don't challenge themselves and they don't, I look at, um, so a company like Netflix, yeah, Netflix had a model, which originally was to send out DVDs by post, and uh, you'd, uh, it competed with Blockbuster, who had these late return charges, and you could keep the DVD as long as you wanted, and when you returned it, you could get another one. And the CEO uh, saw streaming coming on board, and he moved the whole business. And he was vilified by the industry press, his own senior leadership, by investors, and he stuck with it. And you know, Netflix has obviously grown from strength to strength as a result. But I think we need to look in the mirror every now and again and say, what is it that we are attached to that is no longer relevant? And it comes back to your question. Yeah. You know, is there one thing that you are very sure about that you're no longer sure of? Excellent. Look, let, let's wrap up. Tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back in history and you can go back and advise the idiot Frank, age 23, with one piece of choice advice you know he would probably have ignored. What would that advice be that would have probably made his life easier, but you know he would have just gone on regardless? Do more things that make you uncomfortable. That's good advice. That'd Excellent. be it. What are you reading, watching, listening to that you recommend other people pay heed to? That's a long list because I'm, I'm reading, watching, listening a lot. I, I'd love to be inspired. Let me start with Richard Feynman I just mentioned. It's yeah. a source of inspiration for such a long time. Um, not only the funny stories about his books, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, but also the more deeper books, uh, the Feynman lectures on physics, even if you're not a physicist. They're brilliant. They're books that, that pose such great questions about life, probably, but, but also relevant to company life, you know? Start to, to, to think about things in a different way. To make the point, they're very accessible for non-physicists. Oh, yeah, they are. Even I understood mo much of what he was talking about. Not most, but much. But they, they are fascinating and they're very entertaining. They're so good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What am I listening to? Adam Grant's podcasts, I think for me, the podcast, but also the books that Adam Grant is writing and producing is great content. I love that guy for being a deep thinker who is also able to really put the time first into planning his thoughts before he brings them out. Great management thinker. I love that. Listen a lot to the podcast Becoming Better from Chris Bailey. He's a Canadian author of the book Hyper Focus. He talks a lot about what makes our mind so distracted all day and what, what you can do about it. Love that guy. Great podcast called Becoming Better and a fantastic entertainer as well. Love to listen to that. Yeah, and there's one, one name that, that really was influential over the last two years of my life. I've 
come to know Caroline Webb, who is the author of the book, How to Have a Good Day. And I was really impressed by that book, but also by her travels to write that book. It's based on 30 years of consultancy in McKinsey and Company, where she really just answered or gathered answers to the question, what what would make your day better today? And it's not a soft skill book, although it sounds like that when you talk about how to have a good day, but it's deep research-based insights on how the brain works and how you can make sure that when you're operating in a company or in, in life in general, you stay out of defensive mode and really stay in discovery mode. Keep your mind open for discovering rather than shutting down. So that's, that's a book I'd recommend to anybody. How to have a good day. Yeah, love that. Wonderful. Frank, how can people get hold of you? Just by finding my, my website that contains all the information. So it's, it's www.frankgarten.nl. Frank Harton, thank you very much. This has just been an absolute pleasure. It was fun, Marcus. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found the conversation enlightening, interesting, challenging, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can either do so through LinkedIn or via email, marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.